90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. Almost blew away this week, but we're good. Yeah, there there was some pretty significant weather over there in Oklahoma. Yeah. And we were supposed to get some significant weather and didn't. Yeah, it kind of fell apart after us. I think it blew it blew itself out literally. But I don't I don't know what our tornado count was for that day, but it certainly shattered records. <laughs> yeah. No, and I mean that's we have these early season events that always catch people off guard. We had one here December 31st several years ago. Mm-hmm. We had caught one everybody off guard. Like January 2nd, I think. We weren't here, but yeah. I think there was a couple tornadoes January 2nd in the state, not right here. But yeah, it was a very fast-moving storm system that spun up a whole bunch of tornadoes. I'm j- I mean, I've gotten texts from people... All around the place. So obviously this definitely made the national news, you know, saying, oh my gosh, are you okay? So yeah. Right. It was nuts. Um, The entire storage unit that I used when I was a freshman got demolished into nothingness. And I thought, that's a big pile of stuff right there. (laughs) I have heard about that. Several people talk about the storage unit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was new when I was a freshman. So RIP (laughs) self-storage. (laughs) <laughs> yeah but it was it was very interesting and man i would be so sad living somewhere else in the country because they had their storm chasers out in amarillo on tv hours before it got here it's, interesting it's an event you know it's such an event but it wasn't whereas in oklahoma they're like well I saw somebody had compiled a list of all the insane things that Oklahoma meteorologists have said. Oh, no. And <laughs> one of them was like, uh, they were showing a tracker, and they said, well, the storm's on the way, but you still have time to go get Grandma at the casino if you leave now. <laughs> oh, my god! And like, they weren't from this event. These were all his, you right. know, things that have been said in the last few years, but that was the one that just <laughs> stuck out in my mind that I remember. But they were all little things like that. Oh, my god. That's it is, and it's an event, and it's like you got to think if you've ever taught a class, especially like a seventy-five minute class or longer, right? Like you've done before, it's exhausting. Oh yeah, like fifty minutes can tire you out, and if you teach back to back, or if you teach all day long, like it's exhausting. So can you imagine, like knowing I'm going to be on TV? For six hours, nonstop. Yeah. Some crazy stuff has to come out of your mouth. Repeating the same thing over and over and over and describing the difference between a watch and a warning over Mm -hmm. and over and over. Mm -hmm. Man, I think they had like seven, I think we had seven tornado warnings as it came into central Oklahoma. We had seven tornado warnings going at once up and down the line. Like three of which were producing tornadoes. Have you seen the Taco Watch Taco Warning graphic that was produced? (laughs) Okay, so I think this may be one of the best uses of your tax dollars ever. (laughs) Because people still have a lot of trouble between watches and warnings. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. They see you're under a watch, which means they think it's going to happen when the sky is totally clear. Right. Mm -hmm. So... I saw this graphic that was produced. I believe it was by a weather service office, but I'd have to go verify that. Um, I found it, and it says normal fire department uses tacos to educate on weather lingo. So, But I've heard this other places as well, (laughs) other than this event. But it's a picture that shows like raw meat, taco shells, (laughs) peppers, tomato. And it says, that's a taco watch. The ingredients are present for tacos. And then it shows an assembled taco, and that's a taco warning because a taco is imminent. <laughs> oh, this is super great. <laughs> yeah, this is an amazing graphic. 
totally going to use it. Yeah, normal Illinois, the normal fire department. So there you go. Taco <laughs> watch, taco warning. That's our public service announcement, and now it's time for Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> oh, sounds good. I'm real excited about this Fun Paper <laughs> Oh, wait. We have a whole show to do. We have a whole show to do. And I can tell that you're getting back out in the field with your students because the shows that you come up with are more and more field sites, hiking, that sort of thing. (laughs) So true. Um, We had to cancel one of our days this weekend because of the severe weather, Um, just because we were right where the taco was being made. (laughs) Oh, come on. I mean, we had the same field teacher. There could be tacos all around, and we were out in the field. Uh, Yeah, we actually didn't have the same field teacher. I had the guy before him who was even worse. Yeah, he would say, eat that taco and also turn in your mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, uh I know. I know. I'm getting, yeah. Also, I just really wanted to watch all the weather coverage, so that's actually why. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, I mean, 10, 15 years ago, you had a big enough class of students out there in the field. If lightning hit one or two, like that was acceptable. Hey, they told me as long as I brought back 85%, it was okay. <laughs> wow, you get up to 15%. That's pretty good. I know. I only have 15 students now, though, so it's a little different. <laughs> Ooh. I know. Yeah, that's... Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that means you have to... Well, you only have to bring back 12 and three quarters. Uh, so, that's totally fine. So, yeah, oh. you can lose one pair. <laughs> oh, man. There's plenty of places to hide. It would have been fine. And actually, that area was fine, so... Um, you're right, though. <laughs> that's exactly what Long happening. way around to say this. Correct. Um, it's so funny because whenever I know it's my turn to produce content, I go immediately to like what I've been talking about that week in class because I'm like, oh, this will be great. It's right on my mind. You know, I've got all this stuff to teach you about this geology. Let's do this. And then I'm like, no, I've already taught all these classes. <laughs> so I need to teach a new class so I can have more content. <laughs> geology of war. Yeah, exactly. I've already, yeah, that... Those show notes have gotten a lot of usage. Um, But a class question did lead me into this topic again, which I find hilarious that we keep coming back here. But my students asked, we were going through flow regimes, which you've talked about on this podcast before, and talking about what bed forms are made in different flow regimes. So as you increase flow in a river, what happens to the sand on the bottom? And everyone got real excited, as we always do, myself included, with anti-dunes, right? Oh, yeah. They're so cool. Dunes that move backwards. So cool. So it's at the end of the bed forms, right? You go through and you're just making flat beds, then you make ripples, then you make bigger ripples, which we call dunes, and then we flatten those out because we're going so fast now. And then we make these weird things called anti-dunes. So if you haven't listened to that show, and these anti-dunes are being eroded in the front usually dunes march along with the flow direction and these anti-dunes are being eroded in the front because this eddy sets up and they actually move upstream and oh man we found the coolest video on youtube where it was this outflow from it was some water treatment associated plant near the ocean and they had this super powerful but very narrow little area of outflow And it produced these anti-dunes that were half a meter. They were impressive. (laughs) Impressive. Yeah. Like half a meter tall, just like spewing out into the ocean. And these things were, they were marching upstream and then they'd fall apart and reform. And so my student said, well, how big can these get? And I said, really big. (laughs) I thought you were going to say you found this really cool anti-dune video. And it was going to be my flume video from <laughs> 2010. I said cool in, anti-dune in, video. Uh, oh, you set yourself up for that. <laughs> Your flume video is excellent. I don't want to advertise it because my students have to do that assignment. Thank you, John. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
<laughs> and now they're all going to go find it. Um, <laughs> it's okay. It doesn't give away too much. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, these, these were big ones in nature. And I said, well, you know, dunes in river systems, like really big river systems, can get meters tall. And I didn't even talk about these things, which we'll talk about later, because in really extreme hydrologic events they can these ripples can get really really big and so how do you produce really extreme hydrologic events so extreme you turn the water into a mineral <laughs> well i mean that must mean ice which must mean we're talking about glaciers again why are we so glacier obsessed i mean they're pretty important but it's so funny like i think it's because we grew up in the south where there aren't you know glaciers <laughs> there's no ice other than in the tea <laughs> you are on fire tonight um <laughs> that's exactly right and i do think that is why we're obsessed with them um <laughs> to get these extreme events they're frequently associated with glaciation right but i find what's really interesting about glaciation is that it's really a fairly new idea geologically, like ancient glaciations, which seems hard to fathom, but yeah, not that old. No. Well, and glaciers in geologic time are very small events. They're kind of like a storm that rolls through in meteorological time, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Same physics, different time scale. Yeah. They <laughs> just, in, in terms of you talking about depositing these giant layers of rock or eroding them or creating these huge geologic features glaciers come glaciers go during that time literally yearly right literally yearly or even on some of the you know we talk about the orbital cycles you, you love right. talking about uh, 10,000 years 40,000 yeah, years yeah different Milankovitch periods and all that mm -hmm. which are still in geologic time tiny right so we can see glaciers, right? As we, as I always talk about, especially when talking about climate change, you know, people will say, well, the world has been warm way more than it's cold. Yes, that is true. But people evolved when it was cold, really cold. So. <laughs> and people don't react well to being warm. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so like, that's our dilemma. Yes, the earth will be fine no matter what happens. But we're used to being cold. So people have grown up during glaciations, right, people, modern-ish people, two million years old. And so glaciation has been observed, for sure. Certainly lots of um, indigenous stories about glaciers where they aren't now. But if we talk about glaciation in the past, even though the actual glacier is a very short time scale, the things that they leave behind in the rock are a really big deal. They move, I mean, it, ice is the best agent of mechanical weathering, right? It is a big bulldozer. Mm-hmm, right. And so I will mention Louis Agassiz, who is known as the father of glaciology. He was a Swiss-born um, man of means, and he later immigrated to America where he became a naturalized citizen. And when he did this, he, he worked a lot in glaciology, but he also worked a lot in ichnology, so fish fossils and stuff like that, and made some contributions to biology and was not a great person personally. But he did come up with this. And when he immigrated to America, he was at Harvard. And when he went around the Northeast and he looked a lot at Maine, he said, okay, well, there are some mountain glaciers here, but really this whole landscape in the northeast looks like it does in switzerland so maybe there used to be and he came up with this calculation a two mile thick ice sheet here that's what would explain these landforms that had been left behind and no one had ever really thought about that before or suggested it yeah so taking geologic uniformitarianism that we so love to apply of mm -hmm. if things happen the same way, they're going to look the same. And if they look the same, they probably happen the same way. 
And thinking about it with ice, which, yeah, is something people hadn't thought a lot about at that time. Right. Yep, exactly. And if you're wondering what things are we talking about, way back in episode 51, (laughs) we talked a lot. Well, that's only one of the many episodes that will show up (laughs) when you search glaciers. But that's, you know, we outlined some very specific continental ice sheet things that are left behind, which a few of which we're going to talk about in more specificity here. Um, but if you want to know some of those things that Agassi looked at, you can go back to that episode and check it out. That's sort of the first of the primers um, of continental versus alpine landscapes that are left behind. I mean, and that's what we do, just like you said, John. Like, geology is a big, fun mystery of these are our observations. What does that mean about past whatever past processes past environments past climates um yeah so that's what we do and i did i do not know why we're so ice obsessed but it's certainly one of my most favorite lectures to give i like ice because the dynamics are tractable to the normal mind to me in terms of time like, scale or just like intuitively? Yes. Okay. Like I can think about a glacial process. I can find data that spans a few decades and make observations about that glacial process with modern observing equipment. I mean, you can do that with rivers too. Do they just move too fast for you? But then you talk about more geological things, you know, doing different isotope dating and all that. And Mm -hmm. it's very impressive, but it's still at the end of the day is a little too uncertain for the engineer in me. Maybe this is why, too, because the landforms that glaciers leave behind are very specific to glacial processes. It's... As close to an exact science, <laughs> I feel like, as field geology can get. Well, and they're pretty weird landforms, and they're generally in places that I don't mind going to visit. Yeah, that's exactly right. So I remember seeing, and this is out in Death Valley, right? So very hot, Southern California, Nevada border there. You can walk through some of these trails. I don't remember exactly where the trail is. I haven't been there in a long time, 10 years or so. Um, the rocks are still there, but <laughs> I don't remember the name of the trail. Well, remember the fun paper where the guy painted the rock and then went oh and found it gosh. like 30 years later? Amazing. That's right. So amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That just reminded me of that. Too oh, much. that is so funny. <laughs> yeah. So I, I could, I vividly remember this rock and what this rock was, was a dropstone. Very clearly a glacier process. So if you have sedimentation in the ocean, in a lake even, you would expect, barring crazy circumstances like landslides or something, just like nice layers of mud, right? Very boring, very... Yep, you get silt and stuff that settles through the water column Mm -hmm. and makes this very uniform packet of rock. Exactly. Now, if you have an iceberg come along, which is just a broken off piece of a glacier, it's not just ice in there because as that ice has moved, it's picked up a whole bunch of rocks, a whole bunch of different sizes of rocks. And as it melts, it basically drops out all those rocks. So on this hike, all these nice even layers and then this like football sized rock that has clearly settled down it's distorted the layers below it and then that nice quiescent sedimentation just keeps going on top of it and so that's all distorted around it that's a drop stone the only way you could get it out there besides swimming it out to the middle of the river or to the middle of the lake was a glacier it was glacially rafted sediment now i'm curious since you do teach field methods and field camp and are a field mapper. This is one thing that always kind of drove me crazy with field mapping. Uh-oh. So you're, you're trying to find, you're trying to map out where the contacts are, basically. 
Mm-hmm. And then you do describe the the rock bodies when you're making your strat column or whatever. To me, the interesting thing is not this giant mass of mudstone. <laughs> it's the football size anomaly that's in it. Mm-hmm. That's not going to show up on a map. <laughs> that's probably not even going to make it into the strat column. Oh, this is really funny. This is completely an idea I have for a show about how do you scale maps. <laughs> yeah, because or data you're, in general. Like from a map view, you care about the big contact. What is the surface exposure? Whereas mm-hmm. the dropstone is a crucial clue to what the history of this area is. I mean, okay, yeah, it doesn't tell you if this is an incline, an incline or a syncline. Yeah. But it's crucial to being able to interpret the history of the area, but you're not going to find it on a map, which is why it's so important to go out and put your boots on the ground. Oh, it's so true. So this depends on what type of map you want to make, right? If you are making a surficial map where you're mapping all the stuff as if you're looking straight down from an aerial photograph, which is actually how a lot of field maps are made. There's never boots on the ground. It's true. Yeah. (laughs) So if you want to do that, um, you lump all of this. Gosh, I don't know if there are a lot of these geologists that listen to us. You lump all of it as quaternary. It all just gets called, if it is unconsolidated sediment, whether it comes from a river, an alluvial fan, a glacier, a landslide, it all gets called quaternary. And it all gets colored yellow. Yep. Yep. So if you're 2.6 million years old or younger, sorry, you need a very specialized map. So, no, I just thought that was interesting. Like It is it, interesting. It is, you can't map every little detail. Yes, but that is still but that, a very interesting point. You know, something that important can be totally missed on a map, and it's not oh, yeah. because the person that made the map was bad at it. It's because that's not what the map's for. Right. That's exactly right. And... If you, and so this is the importance of observations and all the things that go along with the map. These are modern glaciers, and the stuff we're going to talk about are formed during the Quaternary. Um, But, like dropstones, those are the evidences that are left. Is that a word? Nope. (laughs) The evidence? Yeah. Yeah, Sure. yeah. Yeah. That's left behind from ancient glaciers. And so... That can occur in this unit, and you're never going to map a dropstone in there because the one I saw was a football size, right? And so you have to make sure that that stuff gets included in the descriptions of units on maps. But man, think about how many times that's not true, right? You look oh, for up- sure. And yeah. this is important for you students going to field camp mm-hmm. because your maps need to be generally applicable, but provide depth if somebody chooses to dig in. Exactly. So imagine if you were trying to study drop stones and you've identified time periods where the paleoclimatic evidence, you know, lines up to maybe there's glaciers in this area. Man, it'd be a lot easier if you could look at a map identify your time period of interest and look at those descriptions and say, ah, this says it's got some weird stuff in it, like dropstones or glacial striations or something like that. While glacial is an interpretation, striations is not. So as long as you make that in your observations, incredibly helpful. And you can go too far the other way as well. I have (laughs) utilized a map where a section that was exposed, Uh, there was a a little bit of one facies, that clearly must have been this person's master's thesis, (laughs) because most of the units were pretty normal descriptions for a geologic map, and then there was an appendix for this one unit, and it was a (laughs) centimeter by centimeter description (laughs) of this unit. We do that sometimes. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. We're we're working on that right now. I have a student who's actually looking at a lake that was made during the last ice age. It wasn't dammed by a glacier. It was probably dammed by a landslide. But still, yeah. And he is doing a centimeter by centimeter description of 160 meters of core. And he probably wants to quit and is mad I'm his advisor right now. <laughs> right. So that's you how know, drop zones are one thing that could get really easily overlooked. Mm-hmm. Um, something that's not even going to get mapped is an esker. Yeah. It should. I mean, it depends on what that esker's on. No, it's probably all on quaternary. You're right. Yep. It's all yellow, and it, you might notice it if you look closely at the topo contours, the contours, but it might also not be big enough to really show up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And remember, eskers are those weird inverted rivers. Like, that's how I imagine them, right? It's Yeah, you get this channel under the glacier, and you start piling sediment in it, and yeah. And then once the glacier goes away, you're left with this sediment above the ground that's in the shape of a river, because that's what it was. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. And you can buy esker water. If you don't remember that episode, you can still buy Esker water on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Amazon. I know, man. Um, I will not lie. In my extreme climates class where we were talking about glaciers and we talked a lot about Eskers and student looked that up and said, this is off topic, but are you interested in this? I'm like, yeah, of course. We're clearly going to buy Esker water for all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, There you go. It tasted like regular water <laughs> but it was cool to say <laughs> yeah trying to work in something about your escortations but oh man we gotta get through this your dad jokes are gonna kill me tonight <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah before we pressed record i had a couple of good ones so. oh man <laughs> so yeah you were you were looking at places where you can go see some of these features and you sent me this link I had no idea this even existed. I didn't know it existed till tonight either. <laughs> Which I am ashamed to say as a regular holder of National Park Service yes. passes. How embarrassed are you? I was embarrassed. But here's the reason why we didn't know this existed, right? So I was talking about with my students, these can get really big, these cool dunes and everything. And I haven't drop this on them yet huh drop stone joke there um (laughs) i'm certainly going to do so um on thursday in class and i thought these are some extreme hydrologic events so let's talk about the ice age floods because there are a lot of them that created really crazy landscapes and i so i looked up ice age floods and i thought i would get a bunch of stuff who's that guy that's doing that ancient it's not ancient aliens but it's some show on netflix about archaeology and he actually talks to people about these ice age floods too so i thought i'd get a lot of those hits but instead of that i got the ice age floods national geologic trail and it's a national in quotations park here in the united states and it's been around since 2009 practically forever (laughs) I don't have students that were born that that late, but close. We're getting close. Very close. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have well, children that I were do born after born, that. Yeah, I do. My son was born then. Um, why I think we didn't know this existed is because while it became like this national park thing, it got an official manager just a year and a half ago. And so now that it has a manager and someone to market it there's a lot of stuff out about it now okay so that makes sense yeah so that's that's my guess anyway the national geologic trail is huge yes so in order to understand like why this exists (laughs) you have to understand a little bit about ice ages and again we've talked about this on the On the podcast before, too. Um, But there were, like, four sort of really big glacial advances. um, And this thing that we call the last glacial maximum, the LGM. That was about 18,000 years ago. And these huge continental ice sheets that were in all of the northern part of the world. But obviously we're talking about North America here. 
that were in North America coming down from Canada pushed forward and retreated, pushed forward and retreated. And the, the largest push was 18,000 years ago. They retreated and grew, not to the maximum extent, um, for about 3,000 years after that. And then they mostly went away. And the area where the Ice Age Floods National Geologic Trail is, is on the edge of what we would call the Cordilleran Ice Sheet. And that's what covered this area. And this Ice Age Trail is very specifically along the edge of the Cordilleran Ice Sheet. And so it was the beneficiary <laughs> of a lot of these really cool geomorphological ice and glacial related um, landscapes. And so this big area is four states across. <laughs> yeah. So also maybe why it's a little hard to market because it covers Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Montana. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously we would want to hit all of these places. I think this is a really unique like park idea too, because a lot of these places along this Ice Age Floods Trail are already state parks or they're like little science centers that maybe got some usage. But now being part of this larger network, I think that's a really cool way to tie in all the like disparate areas that are looking at these geomorphological features of the Cordilleran ice sheet and get, you know, their names out there. Cause there's a lot of really cool science being done, but now you're packaging them all together. Obviously people like to make lists and click them off. So I would want to go to every one of these places on this ice age trail. And I think <laughs> there are so many places that I thought we're going to bust this into two shows <laughs> because there's a lot to talk about. Well, and we're already half an hour into this one. So. Sure are. <laughs> We'll see how that goes. It could yeah, be three. So, so maybe three shows, right? <laughs> we should at least get through Idaho. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Idaho. Oh, no, not Idaho. I'm sorry. Well, no, we really do need to talk about Idaho first, even though it's not... Yeah, because this is yeah. sort of where everything got driven from. Here. Yeah, it's not the furthest east, so sorry for those of you, because we're not marching from east to west, which clearly I'm the one having the problem with this. <laughs> but the process sort of starts in Idaho. Right, and that's because, well, that's where things got damned up at. Right. A lot of my, inexplicably, a lot of my research is about lakes, which is not something I ever would think would happen. And it just goes to show you, you never know what you're going to, where you're going to be five years from now. You know what I mean? And so a lot of the lakes that I look at aren't lakes anymore, but they were lakes. And if you think about a valley, say like Glen Canyon, that's been in the news a whole lot lately. Glen Canyon Dam, right? You dam up, and in this case, humans did this. You dam up a river flowing through a canyon, and that river has nowhere to go now. And so it's just going to build up and become a lake. And this happens naturally as well as through human intervention. Right, and you can dam something with you have sediments, you can dam it up with ice, which is one you may not think about. Yeah. But in this case, we've got the glacial dam of the Clark Fork River. Right, and so it flooded the valley that the Clark Fork River flowed through, right? So Clark Fork River, through some reason or another, has created this valley, You've got this glacier on the end of it and nowhere to go but up. And it essentially fills up this huge lake called Glacial Lake Missoula. But actually, there's still a lake there right now um, in this area. So there's a current day lake, Lake Pend Oriel. Orel? I meant to have you pronounce that because I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> I would say Orel. Okay, there's a lot of 
French place names in Idaho that I don't know. <laughs> so, but that's where the glacial dam was. Um, and also, if you're going to make a lake fail, right, um, it's also where it melted. And they call it something cool. It's called the breakout zone. <laughs> I mean, you think about it, you have a lake, something that can generate hydroelectric power. Mm-hmm. And the dam fails. They generally don't fail, you know, with the person going up and sticking their finger in the hole. Like the failure may start there, but it very pro- quickly progresses into catastrophic dam failure. Yes, exactly. And so instead of having like a concrete structure or a landslide where you have to move a lot of rocks, you're just melting this glacier. And yes, lots of outflow. Um, the. Lake Pandorel that's there now, this is a glacially carved lake. So just like the same glaciation that carved the Great Lakes. So it's pretty deep. It's this glacially carved area anyway, because remember, like there's a lot of advance and retreat of the glaciers. Sometimes it's hard to know how much because each successive advance, you're going to very closely eradicate all the evidence of glaciers before right because glaciers are just such big bulldozers yeah i mean build a sand castle and then let the tide wipe it out and see if you can find where it was yeah exactly it's so not there quite s- that dramatic but close it is close there are some some things left behind for that um but yeah so this is where the lake was this is where the breakout zone occurred and you say how do we know that this is where it was well this whole area is surrounded by these big stones that were moved from other places. We call this glacial erratics. We'll talk about those next week. Um, and drop stones. So we know that this area was definitely um, affected by glaciers. And then as this glacier formed, dammed up the Clark Fork River, it creates what we call Glacial Lake Missoula. So it's so big it's not only in Idaho anymore, right? It spills over into Montana. And we know this is a big, big lake because of some of those geomorphological features we see. Not just evidence of the glacier, but evidence that we see in lakes today. Right. Yeah. And so this is what's cool. I think this is what's really cool because you could be like a glacial geologist, but you can also be like a lake person. Like I, we've had, um, Dr. Mike Sorgan on the show before. So he's a lake guy. And not only do you have known to spend some weekends at the lake. Exactly. (laughs) So we're from the South. We're lake people. Yeah. And, oh, sorry. I think we were going to probably hit the same one, right? Go ahead. You go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so I'll just say uh, bathtub, sink, or toilet rings and let you go from there. <laughs> Why do you guys say toilet rings? <laughs> um, I mean, it probably was a crappy situation if you were around when this thing flooded. <laughs> uh-huh. Ah, you're just mad you didn't do it. Uh-huh. So those bathtub rings... If you've been following all the drama associated with Glen Canyon, you know, um, the lakes in the southwest part of the U.S. have those, like, they're white. They're, like, actual mineralization that goes along the sides of the rocks. And what they mark are the different shorelines. So it doesn't have to be just mineralization. It could be these things called strand lines. Because, you know, you have a big enough lake. You know this. We're from down here. Lots of lakes. The shoreline, there's always some movement along the shoreline, right? Like the shoreline, the the waves are always lapping at the shore. And then if you think of a time when there's less water in the lake, you can see those old shorelines, those little lines that are left behind in the sand, right? Yeah. Yeah. So those things gives you some idea of historic levels. Right, exactly. So those things are called strand lines. And so you can see these strand lines along the shores of Glacial Lake Missoula. And, I mean, they look like tiny, but they look like these little steps. They're in these perfectly parallel, like, benches, essentially, 
that are all along the hillsides. And they're at, this is the key from the few quaternary geologists that I hang out with, they're all at the exact same elevation. Because you could say, well, that's caused by a different geomorphological or, you know, a different process. You know, how do you know that this is a strand line and not just some erosional surface or something like that? And you know it's because a strand. gravity and water are a big level. Yeah, exactly. And it's like you go around and you say, okay, if I were going to fill this up with water, <laughs> is this little strand line, this one specific bench at the same elevation everywhere? Okay, then that is a base level. That represents a shoreline. And so that's what quaternary geologists do is they go around and they say, yeah, mm -hmm, let's take all the other tectonics out and say, that was all one spot. So there was a lake here. Yeah. So these quaternary geologists get in a canoe and have a GPS unit mm -hmm. and maybe a wakeboard or other fun <laughs> lake stuff. And they get to go out and spend a lot of time at the lake doing this. Yeah. Historically. Mm -hmm. Now, there's probably a lot of that that happens with GIS now. Yeah, that's true. And, and GIS, I know, goes into, this is a lot of um, the USGS quaternary geologists that I work with looking at the Colorado River. A lot of it starts as a GIS thing, and you're looking, and then you go out and sort of get your really fancy ELF GPS and go around and take all these elevations. Mm -hmm. right. Things quaternary geologists do. It's very interesting. <laughs> but back to this lake. It was really big. Mm -hmm. And here you're going to give us units that make no sense. <laughs> because we're in the U.S. and this is the National Park Service. They have to do this, which I love these units. How big was it is what you ask. That is what I ask. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what I heard. 2,900 square miles is, ha is the area of the lake. But more importantly, 500 cubic miles of water. I don't know whether to be impressed. <laughs> yeah, like, like I don't know what this means. <laughs> this is like when they say hurricanes are 500 quadrillion tons of TNT. I, I don't know. <laughs> is, I have no concept for one ton of TNT. Exactly. So that sounds big. And I'm guessing because there's an exclamation point. 500 cubic miles of water is also big. Well, also, though, when you pick a unit, like if somebody uses something that it's 180,000 square flurgers, it's like, well, sure, but you wanted that number to sound big. Otherwise, you would say it was, you know, 0.18 mega flurgers. And then it would sound really small. Um, uh. So, for reference for the rest of the world, the lake area was about 7,500 square kilometers, which is indeed relatively sizable. Mm -hmm. uh, or if you if you want to, oh, this is gonna hurt. Uh, are you are you doing gallons to cubic miles? Because that's what I got. I've got that number. <laughs> no, I want to know that one. Um, okay. I did the area again, but it's 1.9 million acres. Oh, you didn't use hectares. I'm so disappointed. I don't know what a hectare is. I know what an acre is. Oh, so disappointed. Isn't a hectare? Uh, okay, like hold on. It's um uh let's see, what is it? Uh three quarters of a million hectare. Mm, okay. Thank you. <laughs> did that did that help? It did. So in class today, this is an aside, but we're on a roll. In class today, I'm taking paleobotany. We will undoubtedly discuss it more. We were talking about pollen shapes and he said, this looks like Mickey Mouse. So there's these two, to me, it looks like a molecule of water. And I said, okay, but what are the, are those spheres? Are they half spheres? And he goes, they're oblate spheroids. I said, oh, okay, thank you. And this kid next to me just starts laughing. <laughs> He's like, I just <laughs> find it preposterous that those words cleared that question up for you. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so hectares, thanks. Um, <laughs> well, give me some more units I can work with here. Yeah, great. You love this? So one cubic mile is 1.1 10 to the 12th liquid gallons. 
So <laughs> 500 cubic miles is 5.5, 10 to the 14th gallons. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Oh, what is that? That's a million... Do you want this in liters? hundred million, million gallons? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't that... <laughs> okay, so it's a lot. It's so you've got lot. this big area, and you've got a <laughs> lot of water, which mm-hmm. probably means this had to be relatively deep. Right. Um, and so this is a stop on the trail, is the Eddie Narrows, which is a fantastic name. <laughs> um, and that's where the lake was the deepest at 1,000 feet. Which is okay. really deep for a lake. Well, 20% of a mile, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. I think Crater Lake is the deepest lake in America. And that that's 2,000 feet deep. Right. So it's like half that, which is impressive. It's impressive. Um, yeah. Which is also near this trail. <laughs> when... The ice starts to melt, right? We have, it's happened, it happened and the lake spilled over and poured out in this extreme hydrologic event. We have at least three times um, during these glaciers melting and advancing that we know that the dam broke. Okay, so you're getting this cyclicity and washing everything downstream out. Mm -hmm. Right, which, I mean, which makes sense. Um... (laughs) I want to throw this other ridiculous thing out. (laughs) When it did let go. So it's like, how extreme is this event, right? It's very extreme because like you alluded to earlier, it lets go. It's a lot of water. It's all at once. It's not seeping over the top of the dam. We're not letting little bits of it go. (laughs) 10 cubic miles per hour. (laughs) So I'm, I'm trying to convert this into something that makes sense. So I'm trying to go to per second. It's still a big number. Mm -hmm. So I am getting 12,504 million liters per second. Oh, man. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would like to see the the stream discharge curve for that one. It's just a line. <laughs> well, what was the flow rate on this? Uh, so, you know, that's volumetric flow. It's different than... Yes. But that's a whole nother show. That is correct. <laughs> that was a whole nother lecture in class, too. I just threw this one out there. It's a lot. There's an exclamation point. That's what lets you know. That is a lot, right? I think about sitting there for an hour and watching 10 mile by mile volumetric cubes flow by right like that's how i imagine this <laughs> you know but, as you would lazily sitting there watching these that's right this huge like catastrophic outflow yeah um slipping my sipping my pina colada because it's warming up so that's what you would do um what's exciting about this like that little anti-dune video that we watched with these half meter tall anti-dunes which was a lot this created massive ripples. Mm-hmm. How massive were they? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. Um, so, I mean, they're huge. They're really big. If you were to walk this landscape, they would look like hills. And that's what they were for a long time until we figured all of this stuff out. Because remember, glaciology... And talking about past ice ages, it's only like 150 years old, that science. So these things are now termed um, these big, huge things, right? So they're called giant flood ripples. And this is some of the evidence that we knew there was a lake and that it catastrophically failed. And these are the Camas Prairie ripples, Um These ridges, they're just these ridges, like I said, you would think they're hills, but they're parallel to each other. They have a wavelength. (laughs) Okay. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, Some of them are sort of small, which sounds ridiculous, 15 feet high to 50 feet high. 
That's that's a big ripple. It's a huge ripple. <laughs> 100 to 250 feet wide and like 300 feet long to half a mile long. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, the picture of this is so neat because it almost just looks like rolling foothills going into the surrounding Columbia River basalts. We'll talk a little bit about that base geology next week. But then you realize that, well, they're kind of, the tops of these ripples are kind of at the same level as the actual ground. So they're not like big hills going away. You know, it's like all of this is sedimentation associated with this um, outwash. Huge flood that comes from the breakout zone. And yeah, creates these mega ripples, as I would call them, that are preserved. So cool. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like we need to go see this. I absolutely agree. We'll talk about more of this outwash stuff next week um, because you might be saying, but I know of a place really close to this. But these canvas ripples are, canvas prairie ripples are just beautiful and you should totally look them up. And yeah, this is the picture I'm going to lead with for class next Thursday and say, how big can they get? This big, 50 feet high, 100 feet wide, 250 feet wide. That's a lot. Yeah. It is. But I don't know about you. I, I'm i kind of interested in talking about something that's a little harder to see than these giant ripples. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> Nigh invisible, eh? And that means it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. <laughs> Fun Paper Friday. Yay. Um, did you love this? I love this. This was nuts. This was an interesting paper for sure. What's even more interesting is to think if, if you go to the ocean, you know how many of these you've probably swallowed? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, Photonic Tinkering in the Open Ocean by Feller and Porter. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Photonic Tinkering. What? I love the title. I do, too. I love everything about this. I think this is an amazing graphic. Fantastic. So this is very new. This just came out like two weeks ago um, in science. And what it is about is talking about these little pelagic crustaceans. And this actually, when I read this, it has a lot to do with uh, paleobotany. It's very interesting because if you think about plants today, you can look at plants today. Great. There's a whole plant. I can describe all the parts of the plant and everything about this one plant. But if you think about trying to look at fossilized plants, you rarely have that plant complete. You might find a leaf, you might find a stem. You might find a piece of pollen, and you don't know that all goes into the same plant. And I thought it was cool how they talked about these things haven't been studied very well, these little pelagic crustaceans, which is what they're talking about, because they're actually, like, there's a whole bunch of them floating in the water, but there's a whole bunch of them over the whole ocean. Any one part of the ocean, you can't catch a bunch of these little things if you go out and try to get them. And you certainly have a hard time figuring out the babies from the adults because you just don't see them all together in one spot. I thought that was really, really interesting because it seems like a very like basic study, but the fact is it's hard to get the data because these little guys are hard to catch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and obviously they have weird eyes. That's the photonic part. <laughs> well, I mean, they, also they want to be hard to catch uh, mm-hmm. for predators, and I love that they describe this as an arms race. <laughs> so I, the paleontologists hate me when I say this, but I think it's funny, and I th- also think it's very, like, we didn't have hard-shelled creatures until one little worm reached over and bit the worm next to him, right? Yeah. And he was like, I was oh. saying, in this case, it could be a literal arms race, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> um, 
This is so cool. We talk a lot about convergent evolution when we talk about paleobotany, and I didn't understand how philosophical the topic of evolution is, but that's probably 18 more shows. Um, But the point of this is these guys are invisible sometimes. They have to work at it, which was very interesting. (laughs) But if you're invisible you still want to be able to see things that are coming after you. And in order to see, there has to be dark parts in your eyeballs. So how do you make your eyeballs not look like two eyeballs floating in an invisible body and get eaten? Right, because you have to be able to absorb light to sense it. Yeah, exactly. And it turns out there's actually a lot of ways you do this, right? And I love the words that they use for this (laughs) Right. Glittery eye shine. Is that Gl- the one that you're thinking? Glittery eye shine. <laughs> That's what I'm going to call, yeah, all makeup from now on. Glittery eye shine. So there's these potentially convergent evolutionary things going on, which means there's an awful lot of zooplankton. So these tiny little things that are transparent, that are floating in the water, that are little crustaceans. Um, and all of them are trying to do the same thing that John was talking about is trying to be invisible to predators. And so these different photonic, is that what they say? Photic, photonic manipulation of how their eyes evolve. Um, they're all trying to do the same thing through different mechanisms. And so there's a lot of different morphologies of eyeballs in these little invisible crustaceans who have to concentrate to stay invisible, which is nuts. It sounds like something out of the, the original series, Star Trek. Exactly. So like they said, if they get stressed out or too tired, they become not invisible anymore. What? And it said there's a lot of research, and then they, they said something that blew my mind, about what well, we don't really know about a lot about how they do things like make their organs invisible or their blood, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> Way to leave me hanging, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh-huh. I'm like, well, there's like, are there references? I, I want to know more about invisible blood. I know, and this is where they talk about there aren't a lot of references because these, you can't just pick up a cup of sea. Now, there's a lot of stuff floating in a cup of seawater, especially right offshore. But if you go way out there and you pick up a cup of seawater, there's not that much stuff. And so. That's why they're not well studied. And also, they said that, you know, part of the arms race is, well, some predators now have ultraviolet vision, and that doesn't, that breaks the transparency. Photoreceptors that are capable of detecting up to three distinct wavelengths of UV in order to see these guys. So these guys don't even, like, see like we see. So they have hyperspectral cameras like a satellite. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, a millimeter across. (laughs) Yeah. Um, One of these, they're talking about in the game of open ocean hide and seek, animals have to, you know, basically evolve mechanisms. This is an excellent, excellently written, exquisitely written paper, I think. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. So they have these weird glittery eyeballs that act to, well, some of them, act to reflect the color of the water around it. Mm -hmm. And so they essentially light match the surrounding water. So if you're looking at them, like, yeah, maybe glittery, but it's still the same color as the water, so it's probably nothing. Right. Very interesting. And and I thought you'd like this. What is that stuff made of? Like, what are these glittery things? Photonic glass. Nanospheres of photonic glass. And everything comes down to nanotechnology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Previously unknown type of this stuff. Isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. For sure. So, yeah, you've got these little bitty creatures that are super advanced, and they're getting more and more advanced in an effort to continue to stay transparent. 
while being able to see other transparent things so they can have dinner. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, and this is a, a relatively short article, so I encourage you to go read it and uh, learn all about glittery eyeshine. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, definitely if you search glittery eyeshine, you're going to be straight in the Sephora website. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if folks have their own glittery eyeshine research, how can they send that in? Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. We're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. And if you would like to support us, please do so. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.